Welcome to Kelly Dry's Full Spectrum Podcast, bringing together thought leaders in the technology, media, and telecommunications industries to discuss legal issues that are expected to impact today's organizations and tomorrow's marketplace. Kelly Dry Full Spectrum is produced twice monthly, and show notes are available at www.kellydryfullspectrum.com. For more in-depth commentary, head to our blog, comlawmonitor.com. All links are in the show notes. This podcast is produced by the Kelly Dry Communications Practice Group. Hello, and welcome to Kelly Dry and Warren's second uh, TCPA podcast, Inside the TCPA. I'm Steve Augustino from the Communications Practice Group, and with me... Jenny Wainwright, also from the Communications Practice Group. This is the second in our regular series discussing TCPA issues. It's our intent in this series to dig deeper inside the TCPA and to dig deeper into our TCPA tracker, which we, pre- we present monthly um, to, uh, via email to folks. So today, um, what we're going to do is we're going to dig deeply into a second topic that is consumer consent, that is consent to receive auto-dialed or um, pre-recorded message calls. In our first one, which if you haven't listened to, I encourage you to go back and listen to it, we talked about what is an auto-dialer and therefore the scope of the TCPA as it relates to that portion of, of the requirements. But today, it's all about consent. And by way of background, we're going to talk a little bit about it. Um, the TCPA has two relevant standards for consumer consent here. The first is prior express consent, and the second is prior express written consent. And those apply in different scenarios. Basically, uh, just to simplify a little bit here, the heightened standard of prior express written consent applies to calls with advertising content or calls that are telemarketing calls. Um, we'll be talking about those, con- those and how those apply in various contexts. Um, what we have set up for today are two things. First, we're going to talk about the pending requests as it relates to revocation of consent, that is, the ability of a consumer to revoke consent that they previously granted. And then we're going to talk about some of the petitions that are still pending at the FCC that deal either with exemptions for consent or with clarifications of what consent means. Okay, so you ready for us? Jenny, you ready? I am ready. Let's jump right in. Okay, <laughs> so let's, let's start with revocation of consent. And that starts, again, we're going to start sort of in the middle of the story, but let's start with the D.C. Circuit's decision in March in ACA International. Yeah, so um, so many of our listeners probably know, but for those who don't, the D.C. Circuit issued a major TCPA ruling back in March um, covering a number of issues, including auto dialers, which, as Steve mentioned, we went into detail on in our last podcast. But another hot-button issue that the court was asked to rule on was this idea that the FCC adopted in 2015 that a consumer can revoke uh, consent to receive calls at any time and by any reasonable means. So a number of parties challenged that, saying that it was overly broad, and the D.C. Circuit was asked to rule on it. Interestingly enough, of the three hot-button issues, we'll call it, in the ACA order, there was the fourth issue on on the uh, health care exemption, but that's a lesser of lesser importance, I would say. But of the three hot-button issues, this was the one where the D.C. Circuit actually sided with the FCC. They said, no, we we think that the FCC's interpretation of revocation of consent was reasonable. Um, it was not arbitrary and capricious. Um, but there are two key caveats that, that go with it that I know we're going to talk um, in detail about. 
And so to jump into the first one. So, so wait, before, yeah. before we do that, let me, sorry. Let, let's go back. So, so what the D.C. Circuit said was that the FCC's decision was within the zone of what is reasonable or what is uh, the agency is entitled to deference on. That Correct. Is, right. Okay. So the basic decision from the FCC is that a consumer has a right to revoke their consent by a reasonable means. Right. Right. Okay. All right. I, I want to set that up because I think the two um, statements that you're going to point to here are really important in understanding what is reasonable and, right. and to what extent it is. Um, but the first point I want to make out of this, and I want to explore, is the court in finding that the FCC's conclusion was within the zone of deference or with, within its discretion, it pointed out a couple of things that the FCC said about the reasonableness of the revocation method. So let's focus first on the burdens on the caller or the entity who's making the call. What was it the court said that um, that relates to this? Right. So the court actually looked to um, language that the FCC had put in the declaratory ruling that made clear that you know even though there's this standard out there of revocation by an, at any time and by any reasonable means, that does not necessarily mean that a caller is subject to an undue burden or some sort of overly burdensome requirement to implement that revocation of consent method. Right. right. So, so if, if a consumer adopts a method that is uh, burdensome to implement, the court said that wouldn't necessarily fly here. Right. So sort of the the famous example, right, is is actually Chairman Pai's dissent from the 2015 order. I think he said, uh, you know, under the standard that we are implementing, could a consumer uh, revoke consent by walking up to a McDonald's counter and saying, I'm not, lo- I'm not loving it. And is that enough uh, to, to revoke consent? And the implication in the court's order is no, that is not a reasonable means for a consumer to revoke consent. Right, right. That, go, that goes to a piece of it. They said you don't have to train every single retail employee as to the finer points of consent. Right. right? Um, but then there's a second part of that as well that the court pointed out in terms of the overly burdensome means of that. And that was where they were talking about how um, callers may have an incentive to um, avoid clearly defined or easy-to-use opt-out methods as a way of... Um, you know, gaming the TCPA, if you will. Now, the D.C. Circuit didn't say that. That's my characterization of it. But I do think it's fair to say that is some of what we are seeing in um, activities, particularly as it relates to text messaging. And we'll get into that a little bit more as we talk about the remand part of this. Um, But we do see consumers, at least some consumers, trying to game the system and not using those, those methods. And the court said that that, look, the FCC's statements on that we take to heart. It really does say it's not going to be overly burdensome, not going to impose undue burdens, and those types of things might be overly burdensome, so therefore they wouldn't necessarily be reasonable. Right. And and in that regard, they also went into the consumer's reasonable expectation. And so if you do have a consumer that is actively trying to sidestep um, a reasonable means of revocation, the court was very clear that those types of, actually they said, quote, idiosyncratic or imaginative revocation requests, um, those could very well be seen as unreasonable and so outside the scope of, of what the FCC had defined. Right, yeah. And, and th- this was this is an important part, I think, because for those who do provide a means or one or more means for parties to c- revoke their consent, um, what I think the court was getting at is if you provide the consumer with three methods and you make it clear that those are the three methods that you can do it, um, a fourth method in theory might be reasonable 
but it seems to me you're going to have a harder time in showing that you as the consumer can reasonably expect that this other method, which isn't defined, right. Raises is going to be right. you know, operable here. So um, I think that those two things are really important. The third thing the, the court said about this, um, which is also important, related to the scope of the ruling. Now, when the FCC was talking about this, they were talking about consumers who um, their ability to revoke consent in an ordinary situation, right? Mm-hmm. But there was at least one point that was brought up in the briefing that the court pointed out and said this isn't within the scope of what the FCC said. Right. And that is um, a contractual situation. That is when a consumer agrees uh, in, by contract that they can revoke consent by only a certain method or methods. Um, and the court made pretty clear that um, that the order did not address private private um, contracts between parties. And so um, there was nothing in the court's order that seemed to have concern about if parties mutually agree on revoca- on means of revoking consent, um, right. that right. there would be an issue there. Right. Well, well, well at, at this point, we just don't know what would what would apply in that situation. Right. right. The FCC's pr- pronouncements don't um, apply in that circumstance. Now, what the obligations might be in that circumstance, we don't fully know yet. That will have to be played out in, in future litigation. So, so, th- so those are the limits to what the FC- what the court said in upholding the FCC's determination. Mm-hmm. Now, all of this went back to the court to the I'm sorry, back to the FCC anyway. Right. Um, and they, as we talked about in the first podcast of this, the FCC has issued a public notice, has asked for comment on how to implement the court's ruling in a variety of areas and apparently also in the revocation of consent area. Right. right. All right. So let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the FCC, it's interesting. If you, if you look at the public notice, they actually um, seem to rely pretty ex- um, extensively on the language that the court provided. And so they said, all right, what public, please tell us what is um, a reasonable means of consent. Um, you know, what opt-out methods would be sufficient um, and clearly defined such that any effort to sidestep them would be considered unreasonable, just as the court had had delineated. Um, and not surprisingly, that was another hot-button issue that they got a lot of comments on. And uh, much like what we saw with the auto-dialer issue, you sort of have the industry, so to speak, uh, callers of, of all kinds um, on one side of the issue and then consumer advocates kind of falling out on the other side. Um, Right. And if I can, I should point out here, I mean, this we're talking about what is now a massive docket. I mean, the the comments and the replies um, exceeded probably 120, maybe to 130 individual parties, um, substantive, lengthy comments, plus hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands of I individual say, consumer yeah. comments, I think, yeah. you know, that, that have gone in. It's made it Quite challenging to go through that. Yeah, I so. went in. I went in one day, and there were you know ninety something comments, and then I went in the next day, and there were three hundred thousand. <laughs> so <laughs> you have to play with the system a little bit to find them. But uh, so we're not going to comprehensively summarize all of those right. comments. Here, right? <laughs> <laughs> all right, but let's pick out a couple of different things here. There were there were a couple of things I want to want to highlight on this. Um, first, some in the industry did argue that the FCC should step in and, and at least specify what types of opt-out methods are reasonable? Presumptively reasonable. Presumptively reasonable. Yep. Okay. And let, let's go through like, like some of what that discussion was here. Well, yeah. I mean, the um, the Retail Industry Leaders Association is a, is a really good example of the comments that, that argued in favor of that. And basically what they were asking the FCC to do was 
um, come up with a list and, and say, please tell us what is a safe method of revocation that we can tell our members or, you know, individual callers. Um, and those methods are presumptively reasonable. And thus, any attempt by a consumer, well, not any attempt, but attempts by consumers um, to use other methods to revoke consent may be deemed per se unreasonable. And so that, the, I think the intent there was to provide some stability in the industry saying, you know, we, we want to understand what the expectation is. And we want to be able to make valuable calls to consumers or text or send text messages and understand and, and get everyone on the same page as far as expectations. Right. Right. So. Th- th- this is too important to wait for case-by-case determinations Correct. of what what options are reasonable and which ones are not reasonable. That right. was part of it. And I think this is, you know, where I alluded to earlier with, you know, that set of comments put out there some of the detail about what is actually happening in the industry here. Um, particularly with text messaging, although I, I don't think that's the only instance in where this is happening. Um, the MMA guidelines for text messaging, which is the common industry standard for text messaging, has always allowed consumers to respond to text messages with the words stop um, or other words, uh, cancel, unsubscribe, et cetera. But stop is usually the, the main keyword that's mentioned in there. It says reply stop to unsubscribe. Yeah, that's the one as a consumer I get the most often. So Yeah, yeah. and that's an easy method. And if you just type S-T-O-P, the, the systems recognize that and they will be able to opt you out on that. But what these comments pointed out is that's not what's happening in the industry. Even though that method is out there, there are many, many instances of, of consumers that are responding with um, – I was going to say stream of consciousness, but maybe that's a little bit um, t- too much. But with uh, a narrative that gets to the point of, I don't really want to receive these, but doesn't use the easy keyword of stop. Right. Something it. like, please remove me from your list, like as opposed to the simple word stop that, as you pointed out, the system will automatically trigger um, to remove them from the list. Right, right. Yeah. And, and so the FCC's order so far has sort of set that up for a case-by-case determination. And we do have, and we did cover this on our TCBA tracker a couple of months ago, we have at least um, you know, one decision so far. I imagine there's going to be many more, and they'll probably split on both sides of this. But there was a case in New Jersey involving edible arrangements where the consumer had tried to opt out using these methods and didn't use the word stop, um, even right. though it was, was made available there. Um, the court found that not to be reasonable and actually dismissed the TCBA complaint on that ground. So, right. You know, we have that at least happening somewhere, but what's, you know, the, the point of the comments here is asking for the FCC to put out something more broadly so that we know that ahead of time. Right. Provide some stability and, and make sure that everyone has clear expectations about what is what is and what is not within the scope of, of reasonable. Right. right. And, and what I'll add here with this particular instance is that although the comment cycle is over, the record is still open. And so for those party that are impacted by this, that are receiving this kind of thing or have... Um, meaningful information about this, there's still an opportunity for you to participate in these proceedings and still an opportunity for you to establish yourself as a party to the proceeding so that you can pursue these on your own even if others do not or that you can participate, for example, in an appeal afterwards. And that's an important element of, of any kinds of decision you make in terms of whether to participate in the FCC is that by filing comments, you become a party and that entitles you to then participate in the appeal, either as a petitioner or as an intervener. Right. 
And sometimes people sort of forget that as one of the benefits of being um, an active party in this. You may be watching this and you may be ready to deal with it. But if you haven't participated, then you can't participate in the follow-on proceedings. Sure. Well, and individual commenters often have unique issues that they can present to the FCC and, and give color to really what's going out there in the industry. The FCC really wants a robust record on these issues that allows them to make the best and most informed decision possible. So the more feedback they get about individualized issues that, that people are seeing, the better off uh, you know, the general public will be when the FCC eventually rolls on on these issues. Right, right. Okay. All right. So, so that's, we're going to, I think that's a deep enough discussion right here of, of where the FCC has been on its remand proceeding. Um, I, I want to turn this discussion over now to starting to talk about our second topic, which is when consent is required or the exceptions to consent. All right. Okay. So then, Jenny, let's dive into the, uh, the second element of consent here. And, and the first thing I want to point out here is that we have a monthly tracker of TCPA petitions. And so we've kept track of everything that's been filed at the FCC for several years now. Yep. Um, we have eight petitions in our tracker that we've categorized under dealing with consent. Now, we're not going to go through all eight of those petitions. Um, what we've chosen to do here is we picked three that I think are interesting for one reason or another. And I'd like to dive into those. They're all, to be honest with you, a little bit old. Um, the comment cycle has finished on these. I think all of these were filed before the ACA International decision. That's right. Um, so um, they were dealing in many respects with the older aspects of what the FCC had said. But nevertheless, they're very important here um, in part because when the FCC does get around to these issues, you, we've seen this over and over again, they often will try to clear their decks as much as possible. So these older petitions are likely to be addressed in some form or another or potentially will be the launching off point for the commission to make a point um, or initiate a ruling that they want to get to, and this will be the way to do it. So these may be old, but they're not dead. Right, and to give a little context to that, the 2015 order, when it came out, I think it addressed 23 petitions that had been filed with the FCC. So yeah, you're absolutely right that they do lump them together and try to resolve as many issues as possible in a single ruling. So um, so the first petition that, that is on our agenda for today was filed by the Credit Union National Association. Um, they are, as their title suggests, a trade organization that represents uh, small credit unions across the country. Um, so their petition um, not surprisingly, given the topic of our podcast, centered on consent. Um, but they wanted a narrow carve-out um, for particular calls made by credit unions to wireless numbers um, in one of two circumstances. So the first one is when the wireless subscriber has a, quote, established business relationship with the credit union. Or two, um, the, the second exemption would be if the call's are actually not charged to the called party, say, for example, because they have an unlimited uh, plan for minutes and texts. Yeah. And, and if I may, I mean, yeah. both of those would be expansions over what the FCC has said in the past Correct. on this, right? The established business relationship has not been a, a, a basis, at least not recently, for um, making uh, calls out to wireless numbers. And then secondly, on this not charged to the called party, this is a little different from what other situations have been where they've said, you're not in fact charged for that particular call. Um, they seem to be relying on the fact that many, but not all, but many wireless plans now have unlimited voice minutes or unlimited text or both. Right. 
So it doesn't necessarily detract, so to speak, from a consumer's monthly allotment to receive a particular message. Um, yeah. So, I mean, the CUNA petition is one of many instances where the banking industry has been very active in the TCPA docket. Um, you know, a lot of banking um, associations or individual banks um, come to the FCC and they say, look, we have a lot of legitimate reasons to contact consumers, mostly focusing on people who bank with us, who who have money with us, because we want to alert them of a low account balance or a potential fraud alert, um, things like that. And we want to be able to send those communications without fear that we are running afoul of the TCPA. And so that's really um, the impetus behind this petition and numerous other filings um, by the banking industry. And actually, not surprisingly, the the industry and, and a number of credit unions, I suspect, who are members of the Credit Union National Association filed comments in support of the request. Um, you know, I think one thing that I've learned about the, the credit union industry is that a lot of them are very small and they may not have a robust uh, compliance department or in-house legal counsel. So they are doing the best that they can. Um, but this clarification uh, is in their view, very would be very beneficial not only to the credit unions but to the members that they are trying to um, communicate valuable information to. So um, that comment cycle, the, the petition, I should go back, was filed in September of 2017. Um, and typical with what we've seen with the FCC on these petitions, they opened comment cycles actually fairly quickly. Um, so comments were filed on that petition um, back in November of last year, there were several dozen comments that came in in response. Like I said, a number from individual credit unions and support, but then not surprisingly, uh, some from individual consumers that opposed the request because of this perception that they might be inundated with messages that perhaps they don't, in fact, want. Um, so again, that's that's sort of a, a typical example, I right. would say. Right. Well, before we move on, so I want to do the sort of why should you care then, right? Yes. The comment cycle's done. It's November. It's about banking. and sure. not a bank or what have you. Um, I got two comments about this. Number one, this is a, an example of a situation where I think the FCC has created more work for itself than it needs to. Um, by addressing these issues on a, a very specific set of facts. And they've done it before with package delivery. They've done it with school notices. They've done it with um, utilities, health care exceptions, utilities. They've done this sort of industry by industry, case by case. And they've just created more work for themselves in that because now there's you have to ask what's the content of the communications and why is that going to be? And in fact, at least one of the commenters here is the Inside Sites Association had said this shouldn't be industry-specific. This, If you're going to grant an exemption for an established business relationship or for calls that don't uh, that are sent to consumers who have wire unlimited uh, calling plans, that should apply more broadly. And I, I think that point actually makes a lot of sense here. I mean, I don't know why the FCC wants to address these industry by industry and do it over and over again and say, well, an unlimited call in a banking context maybe, but not in, you know in something else um, doesn't seem to make sense here. Sure. Yeah. And, and one competing interest to that may be, you know, wanting to avoid the perception that you're opening the floodgates, so to speak. Um, you know, the industry by industry may or may not limit those those types of communications. Again, if you're the banking industry, you have to go get your own exception as opposed to a school, as opposed to a utility. I mean, that's that's the competing consideration. But I totally see your point. Well, well the, other, the other thing that's going on here really is that these are being driven right now by petitions rather than by rulemaking. So there are adjudications, Correct. declaratory rulings, and the commission often tries to stick to the facts that are presented in front of it. 
Um, whereas if it would operate by rulemaking in this instance, then it could more broadly adopt a, adopt a rule that applies to all different types of sets of facts. Mm-hmm. And, and that's one of the other, I think, limitations of the way in which they've ad- addressed this. We have a TCPA tracker because there's dozens, if not a hundred, uh, petitions in front of the FCC. Um, whereas if they would open up rulemakings and deal with this in a rulemaking, we'd have a very short tracker. Very true. <laughs> All right. All right. So let's go on to the second one then. Um, so the first one was filed by the industry saying, hey, this is what we want here, right? Right. Second one was filed by consumers or more specifically by certain regular TCPA plaintiffs. Right. So, yeah, that this is sort of interesting. It is at least in my experience, unusual to see uh, class action plaintiffs approach the FCC and seek some sort of TCPA relief. And in this case, they are asking the FCC to go pretty much the opposite direction of every other (laughs) petitioner that has come before the FCC um, in that they are asking the FCC to walk back some longstanding uh, principles that the FCC has acknowledged, the first being um, an order that was issued in 1992 Uh, that essentially said that if you give your phone number to someone, that is consent, uh, absent instructions to the contrary. And then the second was in 2008 when the FCC determined that uh, if a consumer gives their cell phone number to a creditor as part of a credit application, uh, that is reasonable evidence of consent to be contacted about the debt. Um, And in challenging this, they, they basically were challenging the FCC's interpretation of the statute. Um, So again, I think I think the most interesting thing about this is that it is consumer plaintiffs that are seeking this relief. It is not common. Uh, they are one of they, – they might be the only one with a pending uh, consumer petition. I think there was one more that was withdrawn uh, a few months ago. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, well, the other thing that I think is important about this that's interesting is, I mean, they really are bedrock principles of consent that they're attacking here. Now, 1992 order, let's let's be honest here, right? That's the first order right. on the TCPA, right? That's their FCC's order implementing the TCPA. Right. They're asking to go back and undo the foundation. <laughs> so, so they're, I mean, what they're asking for is a very sweeping change yep. in what would be consent. And their basic argument was, well, providing a number um, wasn't express consent. It was implied consent. And the commission, they're arguing, is, is flipping that. So, so in a way, what they're really doing here is... Um, responding to the Hobbs Act again, they can't challenge those rulings indirectly in a court in a class action case. They have to challenge those in front of the FCC. So they're really trying to get the FCC to reopen the record on these particular findings so that they have something they can appeal late, later because they either weren't around in 1992, weren't active on this issue, or whatever. But they didn't challenge these, so these are binding on them mm-hmm. in their class action cases. That's the reason why this is important as it relates here, because if the FCC takes this bait, um, it really opens up very basic questions and will impact the approach towards consent that everybody in the industry has taken already on this. Um, Now, Comments were taken in on this, right? How extensive was the comment? Yeah, so so this one, um, you know, again, the the comment cycle was technically um, March of last year, but there were several dozen responses that came in in, um, following the petition. Um, You know, a couple of notable ones are are entities like the – Retail Industry Leaders Association, who we talked about earlier um, in their more recent comments, but also the um, Professional Association for Consumer Engagement, Um, you know, again – and a number of other trade associations. I was going to say a lot of the a lot of the 
those trade associations that have been active on TCPA recently Correct. participated in this, as did the other TCPA plaintiffs that we usually see. Right. And, and they made a lot of, of interesting points in their comments. But, um, you know, one particular one on this issue is, um, you know, they basically made the point that this requested relief would undermine legitimate non-marketing consumer uh, communications that consumers want and need. Um, so we'll we'll just have to see where the FCC shakes out on this issue, but certainly a hot button issue. And as you said, important to get your viewpoints in front of the commission uh, so that they have a robust record so that you preserve your right to appeal for all of those reasons and, and more. Right. So, so let's move on, on quickly to the last one, yes. which got sort of, you know, minor attention, I think, itself. But let's hit that last one, and then let's talk a little bit more about Yeah, so this. so the last one that we're going to talk about today was filed by um, a, an organization called Network Communications International. Um, this is a very interesting petition because it, it is what seems like a, a narrow issue. Um, so not, Network Communications International is, an, is a provider of inmate calling service. Um, those are the types of services that enable incarcerated individuals to place collect calls from correctional facilities to residential or cell phones, uh, residential lines or cell phones. And that's the only way an inmate can call out from, <laughs> from a prison situation is you can call, collect, you go through these providers, there's a there's screening of the lists and all kinds of other things that happen there. Right. And so um, in their petition, they pointed out that inmate calling services often are the calls that are made from them often are not completed to the recipient for one reason or another. Things like the service provider might block those types of incoming calls um, or, or the person just doesn't recognize them because it's coming from a correctional facility. They don't recognize the number. And so what they were asking for was permission um, to send a single follow-up text message to a called party. So if an inmate uses the inmate calling service um, and the call is not answered or not completed for some reason, um, Network Communications International wanted to send a text message to that recipient saying, hey, you missed a call from this person, sort of with thinking that perhaps they they missed it and it was unintentional. Um, and so this petition did not, as you said, get a lot of, of traction in the docket um, because it is seemingly a, a fairly narrow issue. But I find it interesting because for this particular company – there is enough uncertainty for them surrounding potential TCPA liability that they felt compelled to go to the FCC and ask for a clarification. Um, so this one is is the oldest of the three that we're talking about. This one was filed um, just over two years ago. And um, they actually only got one comment that received uh, in response to the petition. And then uh, Network Communications actually tried to challenge that and get it th thrown out. Um but the one person who commented suggested that these messages might invite recipients to set up payment plans, which they argue is an unsolicited advertisement. Um, they also argue that the messages are an invasion of privacy because perhaps the recipient is intentionally not taking <laughs> the inmate calling services calls. So, But, but I, th I think you're right, right. The details of this don't really matter. What's, correct. What's, what's, a, it's surprising. It's kind of like, oh, I didn't think you would need to ask permission to do something like this. Right. Right. Um, and then B, it points out how far-reaching the TCPA's restrictions potentially can be. Yep. A and so, you know, if if you're also facing something, you know, you may not be an, an inmate calling provider, but you may be facing some unique burden. Um, 
a petition is a way of doing that. Um, here, they sought declaratory ruling. They didn't seek a waiver. That's the other potential means, generally speaking, here, as you might seek a waiver of the rule as it applies in these certain circumstances. Um, so those ought to be things to be considered if you find yourself um, running up against the TCPA restriction in what you think is an odd situation or a situation that um, ought to be allowed. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. All right, so those are the three we wanted to highlight here. And and like I said, the r- main reason for that is to um, highlight the scope of what's out there and um, you know point out the ways in which these decisions may all be lumped together and brought together as the commission is dealing with other things that it has to deal with. So, um, you know, there's a lot more that we could dig into with respect to these things. But I think, again, it's important to understand that if these do affect you, uh, that you ought to be considering whether or not to participate in these proceedings. It establishes your position as a party and it, it allows you to provide information that might be helpful to the FCC to sway one way or the other its outcome on this. You know, So um, I, I urge people to look closely at our TCPA tracker, um, to look closely even at things where the comment cycle has passed because the record is not closed in any of those until the FCC acts. Right. Okay. All right. So um, thank you for uh, listening to us. This is the second in our series on Inside the TCPA. Uh, We will do several more of these. There is a lot more within our tracker and a lot more in the TCPA to dig into. So continue to watch for us and, and look for us. We will be providing more of these soon. Thank you. Thank you. The views and ideas expressed on this program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views or ideas held by Kelly Dry and Warren LLP, its staff, or management.